give uh, Dennis and uh, Herb a round of applause to show your appreciation for them. Thank you. Thank you so much. Please be seated, everyone. You know, I have some resources that I brought with me. It's been said that readers are leaders. It's also been said, if you want to hide something from a man, put it in a book. <laughs> Let not that be true about you, sir. But uh, this, uh, one of my newer books that I just wrote is called The Great Forgiveness. If you're having spiritual conversations with religious people, this is a great book to put into their hands so that it can help them process spiritual things. The Skin You Live In. This book also talks about the idea of building friendships across cultural lines. And one of my latest books, One in Christ, Bridging Racial and Cultural Divides. If you want a free workbook, visit the website oneinchristbook.com and there you can download the six-chapter, six-lesson book, a workbook that you can take groups through on the whole idea of diversity. My wife's book titled, What is God Waiting For? And the subtitle is Embracing Divine Delays in Your Life. Don't you hate when God takes longer than you think? Well, <laughs> my wife you know, has a great way of helping us understand divine delays in our lives. I'm just getting situated up here. Are you ready for the word? Good, good. Well, I'm ready to teach, and so... Let's uh, bow our hearts together. Uh, I'm one of those guys that just have to rearrange everything because <laughs> my engineering mind don't work until I have everything in order. <laughs> so please, let's bow our hearts together. Lord, over these next few moments, I pray that you would just pull up a chair in the middle of our teaching time so that we feel as if we're literally sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning from you. I ask you these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Thank you. This evening, I want to talk with you about the multi-ethnic church. This conference is around the topic of racial reconciliation, which is so critical. Acts chapter 11 is where I'm going to be drawing my principles from. But what we've all learned is that in a divided society, the church must model unity. My question that drives the teaching is this. How do you build and maintain multi-ethnic congregations? How do you do that? Well, in Acts chapter 11, verse 19, we see a roadmap for us that we're going to camp out and unpack and then I'm going to offer to you three building blocks to build strong, multi-ethnic congregations. Verse 19 says, as I read from the NIV, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, 
And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Verse 22. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw that the grace and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. I want you to step back with me in time and recognize this multi-ethnic community of Antioch. I taught last night that it was a diverse community primarily because of its commerce. And what happened when persecution took place in Jerusalem? These Jews began to share their faith. Some limited their share of their faith to people of their own ethnicity. Others did something unique. They stepped across the ethnic, cultural, and racial divide and began to share Christ with people that looked different than themselves. And remarkably, there was this openness and this response, and non-Jews came to know Christ the Savior. And then this overwhelming uniqueness began to happen when they decided, let's gather together and learn how to be a community that's diverse, that's multi-ethnic, where the deepest thing in you connects with the deepest thing in me. That's what community is. Community is a place of realism. It's a place of authenticity. It's a place of identity. It's a place of acceptance. And so they learned those things. What we're understanding then is how do you have more than just, quote-unquote, a meeting with people that are different than you versus do life together with people that are different than you? That's the question. And we have to understand it. I love what Ignatius of Antioch said. He said, my doctrines are universal. They are according to the whole, not partial, because plural perspectives must be allowed. So when you deal with the multi-ethnic church, you have to realize plural perspectives, not on the foundations and the foundational truth of the Christian faith, but on other issues must coexist. Let me offer three building blocks to building a multi-ethnic church as I pull from the text. First, be accepting. Acceptance is seen as friendliness. It's when you are so comfortable with me, you can be yourself. We can laugh, we can joke, we can tell stories, and I get a chance to tell you some of my myths. And you get a chance to tell me some of your myths. Be accepted. My first time preaching in New Zealand, Wellington, New Zealand, the capital, many years ago, they picked me up at the airport. And the host was a white Englishman that had relocated from the UK to New Zealand many years prior to his time, maybe over 30 years ago. As we're 
you're driving from, I should back up and say, big conference was taking place. I was the keynote speaker. As we're driving from the airport to the hotel, he leans over and he says to me, I'm in the front passenger seat, he's in the driver's seat, he leans over to me and says, David, you're the first African-American we've ever had come to New Zealand to preach in our fellowship, and I want you to preach one of those black sermons for us. Now, he didn't know that when you say something like that to someone, particularly who's black, and you're non-black, it's offensive. But I realized that he didn't know. And I realized that his willingness and freedom to say that to me reflected vulnerability on his part. And I realized that when he said that, I had a choice. Get offended or practice acceptance. And I chose the latter. Because he had no idea it was offensive. Nor did I get taken aback and was offended because I, I, I looked beyond his words, even though that was my first meeting. I had met him in Australia some years prior, but it was my first meeting in, in his own home turf, so to speak. And so I realized that, that, that he's, so, he's so vulnerable with me and he's so at peace with me that he shared with me what he really desired. And what he was in essence saying was this. He said, I, I just want you to be yourself. But he didn't know how to say that. So he said it the way that he knew. And when he said that, the principle of acceptance is what we must learn if we're going to do multi-ethnic ministry. Because we're going to offend each other at some point. And we may not even know when we're offending each other. I was in... in Zambia, South Central African country. I'm black. They're black. But when I, and so I'm speaking in Lusaka, Zambia, the, the, the capital of Zambia. And this is the premier church in Lusaka where some of the, the individuals are in the presence. Cabinet, the senators, federal senators, they're members in the congregation. And so this is a church of about 8,000 people. This is, this is the, the Mukimuk church. This is it. And when I'm preaching, I can, my first time preaching, I feel like, this is guardedness. Why are they so guarded with me? And so after the service, I said to the pastor, I said, I feel like the congregation is guarded towards me. And what have I said? What did I do? He said, let, let me give light. Let me shed light. He said, you're American. And we're Africans. And we think you're going to hurt us. Because the typical American thinks that they're better than us. And so, I then had to learn that for them to be able to be accepting of me in this multi-ethnic, though we have the same race, different ethnicity, different culture, I had to do certain things to let them know I'm safe. So when you think about the issue of doing and building multi-ethnic ministry, when you practice acceptance, what you're saying in essence is that I'm safe for you to be with. 
when you mean that, what you're saying to me is that you recognize the value I have and you ascribe value to me. I am valuable to you. And you accept me, even though we're different. I grew up in a home where my dad is an accountant, my mom was an educator, and in the island household, you know, education was pushed so heavily that the question was not whether or not you're going to college. The question was whether or not you're going, which graduate school you're going to. That was the question. In fact, in the Ireland households, you know, they, you know, my mother, my daddy, he didn't really care about it, but he just wanted you to go to school. If you didn't go to school and get good grades, then he'll care. But, uh, but my mother, she, if I went to play baseball, I, and there were four of us kids, so I was the third, the three boys, one girl, the girl's the eldest, and so I'm the, you know, the second boy, so the third child. And so, if I went to play baseball, I'd have to come back and write an essay. And it was graded for penmanship and grammar and syntax and content. And I would remember vividly my mother would take her pinky. She was the educator. She used to be the, you know, one of the senior consultants for the city of New York overseeing early childhood consultants. And that was her role. And so she would take her finger, her pinky, and she would, that's when you'd write, not use computers back, I'm talking about back in the Stone Age. And so I would take, she would take her pinky and put it between every word. So David, when you write, there must be a pinky space between every word for proper penmanship. And so I grew up where I started college at 16 because of this emphasis. And it got into my pores, the value of education. And I speak like this all the time. This is not preaching speaking. This is how I speak. I was trained in the classroom. I loved school. But I was teaching on diversity in our church several years ago. And after one of the services, weeks now go on, and maybe I've preached maybe three, four weeks on the topic, months have gone by, I'm on other topics, I even forgot what I preached about on diversity. And as I'm walking in the hallway, my hand is down. This little boy, he's about maybe eight years old, African-American, he's walking towards me. He doesn't look up. He doesn't see who it is. He looks, he's looking just you know, down, and he sees my hand that I'm of the same race as himself. And then he says, hey, man, what's happening? So I, I can't even say it right. And then he looks up, and he sees me. And he says, oh, I apologize, Pastor Ireland. How are you today? Good day. How are you? I chuckled, but when I walked back to my office, I realized something's wrong. This is interpretation of diversity is that I can't accept him if his style of speaking is different than mine. Then I'm not teaching diversity properly. I'm teaching acculturation. That unless your culture conforms to mine, unless your style becomes like the Star Trek, you know, I'm a, bur- a board, I'll, I'll assimilate you, and assimilation and resistance is futile. If you don't uh, get assimilated into my culture, then something's wrong. And sometimes that's how we teach diversity and reconciliation, and that's not it. See, reconciliation is not a melting pot, it's a tossed salad. 
And when you deal with the issue of diversity, when I take, get a tall salad, the tomato is distinguishable from the lettuce, and the lettuce is distinguishable from the carrot, and the carrot tastes different than, than, than the beet. It doesn't become a mishmash where it's all just melted into one thing. It's not that. If you teach that, that's not racial reconciliation. That's cultural assimilation, and that suggests then that you believe your culture is better than my culture, or my culture is better than your culture, and so my culture dominates your culture, and therefore become one culture that is never the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is every culture is, in, is distinguishable, it's identifiable, and it has assets and benefits and values, and so the multi-ethnic church in Antioch was indeed a very mosaic church where it's very clear. Some of those I don't see color. I say, you're colorblind. I see color. God sees color. He created color. He wants us to see the differences that we have. But he doesn't want our differences to, to, to divide us or segment us or fragment us because that's not what difference is supposed to do. And so when we recognize the first building block of any multi-ethnic, any multicultural, any multiracial church must be acceptance. Now, if we're going to applaud the Lord, let's do it right. Let's just applaud the Lord. The acceptance is when you respect me. And I respect you. So we're different. And sometimes it's tough because we have different values, different things that are priorities. One of the hardest places I've ever preached, I've preached, I've spoken in lots of places, lots of places, from the highbrow, you know, type of palatial cathedrals to the storefront. The hardest place I've ever preached was a drug rehab center. And so why is that so hard? Because I, I grew up in the classroom. And so I felt so different than these guys that were, some of them were coming out of prison by going into a detox center. If they didn't go into the detox center, they had to go back to prison. And so, I got these butterflies. And my stomach stopped preparing. They invited me to preach. And said, why am I going here? And I'm nervous. And when I stood there in front of these men and women, I was about 25, 26 years old at the time. And I decided to do something that I didn't even know was strategic and wise. I just stumbled on it. And I said this to them. I said, my background is so different than yours. And I was very concerned as to whether I would connect with you. And I decided to do something. And that is just to be myself. And when I did that, they were eating out of the palm of my hands. Because... I didn't realize when you're authentic, people accept you. And so when you think about building a multi-ethnic church, don't get all fancy, don't think about all these things. Start in the basic stuff. Acceptance is spelled R-E-S-P-E-C-T. Everyone wants to be respected. Everyone wants to be valued. Everyone wants to be accepted. 
accepted, and if you simply accept them as themselves in unique in their unique ways, they're going to respond. You sow acceptance, you'll reap acceptance. I remember going to this backyard barbecue. And these two guys, they had such a, a rapport and chemistry with each other. White guy, black guy. And they were singing. And they were just so connected. I said, how did you guys meet? And they said, we met in prison. And I said, tell me more. White guy said, I was sitting in my prison cell without my shirt on. And emblazoned on my chest was a swastika. Because I used to be a Nazi skinhead type of thinking. So I had all my emblazoned on my chest. The guards brought this African American man right in front of his cell and said, This is your next cellmate. So when he saw this swastika on the guy's chest, he said, Don't let me in here because we're going to have problems. We're going to kill each other. The white guy says, don't be taken back by this. This is no longer me. I'm saved. I'm born again. The black guy was also born again, but both have done bad things. Though they're saved, ended up in prison, and then they're in prison. They and, and the black guy had, you know, had a guitar. The other guy was a singer, and they're singing songs of Zion in the prison, worshiping the Lord. And when they both came out in prison, here they are in a backyard barbecue. I just happened to be able to get to get an opportunity to be there and meet with these guys. But what they did, by and the, the, the white American said, "I am not." what this swastika on my chest says. And the African American says to him, in the language of the old theologian, we be brothers. First building block. The acceptance. Second building block, be intentional. The multi-ethnic church must be built through intentionality. Segregation by choice is not biblical, nor by accident. It's not biblical. See, we're talking about reconciliation. You have to go out of your way to model reconciliation. And reconciliation is the act of making compatible, to harmonize, to come back together on a social level. Reconciliation is a social word. It's a social word. You can't be reconciled and be separated in a social context. So it requires then that you've got to leave your comfort zone. See, it's boring to have everyone in your race, in, in, your, in your friendship base of the same race. That's boring. And so when you bring people into your life, into your social circle, that are different than yourself, racially, culturally, ethically, the dialogue is so rich, the uniqueness is so much, you learn things that you would never learn. You have different styles of humor, it's amazing. And you laugh about different things, and because you never would look at life that way before. And so you leave your comfort zone. One Chinese proverb says, if you don't step out of your comfort zone, and face your fears, the number of situations that make you uncomfortable will keep growing. So 
So in other words, you got to reach across the, the racial, ethnic, and cultural aisle and be able to connect with others that are different than yourself. And if you're struggling in your ability to do that intentionally, there must be something amiss inside that there's healing that needs to take place. Because if you have been wounded racially, and it happens, you know, you know, African-American people hurt, white people, white people hurt, African-Americans, Latino, across Asian, Asians, you know, people hurt people. And sometimes you're wounded by the hurt of that. But you've got to be intentional. I was teaching on diversity. Once a year I do it good three, four-week series of my own congregation on diversity. I was doing it. This is going back now maybe 15 years ago or so. And I remember saying, i got to come up with a way because for people to get healed of victimization, you don't get healed through a sermon. When you study hurts and pains and victimization, the healing part only takes place when someone is able to tell you their story. If they never get a chance to tell you their story, they never experience the transformative, redemptive, therapeutic, cathartic work in their soul that's meant to, to, to occur. So when you simply have people, when you're preaching, and this is more of a monologue, my presenting information to you, no matter how good you are as a preacher, it doesn't heal the wounds. The person has to tell you this story. In some safe environment. So I'm working through all that. And so I decided I need to come up with an, an illustration, an example that can help somehow open people's hearts wide to this issue of not only acceptance, but intentionality to say, I want to walk down this path of being a part of a multi-ethnic church in an intentional way amidst all of my concerns and ignorance and myths and pain. i got to walk down this road. So I came up with the idea of using a foot washing example. So I asked one of the white guys, would you like to participate in this? And I asked one of the black guys, would you like to participate in this? I just grabbed them, you know, I'd have it on for service, and I said, would you be interested in it? And what I'm going to ask you to do is about 10 minutes into my sermon, when I just lay a framework as to where I'm going theologically and tie in the whole idea of what foot washing means, I'm going to call you out of the audience, and you're just going to sit in the, in the chair you take off your shoes, your socks, whatever, picture of water, a bucket there, towels, and I'm going to ask you to make a statement. You cool with that? So yeah, I'm cool with it. The moment came. I had the African American guy sit in his chair, took off his shoes, socks, rolled up his pant leg. The white guy stood there. And he said, Eugene was the African American guy's name. Ron was the white guy's name. So Ron said to Eugene, now in front of thousands of people, I'm standing here off to the side. He said, Eugene, I, I want to apologize to you on behalf of white people. Because uh, I used to think I was better than you because of your race. I grew up in a prejudiced mindset and home life. And until I came to Christ, I walked around thinking I was better than you. And when Christ healed me, 
He healed that thing inside of me that made me feel superior. But I realized that the way I felt towards blacks, hurt blacks, would you forgive me? While he was speaking, the black guy started crying. So he's seen a big, burly guy, about six four, he's crying uncontrollably. And then they switched. Switch roles. White guy stand. Roll up his pants, leg, took off his socks and shoes. Black guy stand, uh, stood in front of him. And Eugene began to say, Ron, I, I need you to forgive me because I had so much hate in my heart towards whites. I grew up in a home where my dad became alcoholic because of his victimization, because of his race. And I harbored all this hate. When I came to Christ, I I didn't even know how to get through. But you're apologizing me today. It's chipped away all of that harsh and hardness in my heart. Why do I start crying? The mood of the service changed. I lost the service. It was now in the hands of the Holy Spirit. So I was stepping back, watching people cry. Who couldn't control because there's some pain in their hearts that they've experienced. Regardless as to who did what, but there's something in their hearts. See, it requires intentionality. And intentionality is about you praying about the people in your sphere of influence and looking at individuals regardless of their race, ethnicity, or their culture, as individuals that need Christ, and you become the conduit, the vehicle that God wants to use to facilitate that kind of transformation in their lives. Paul made it so plain in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 and 18, when he said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So you have the ministry of reconciliation. You are anointed by God to reconcile, to harmonize, to connect people that are racially and ethically and culturally different than themselves. You have that ability to connect them to one another and to Christ. You've been given that ministry of reconciliation. It's not something you have to search for and hope for. You have it already. It's part of the new birth experience. And so I want you to understand the value of that. And what it requires now is for you to be able to have this confidence. It's like, for example, I have a minister of preaching. So I can turn it on, turn it off, because God gave that ministry to me. Same way you have gifts that God's given to you. And many of these gifts that you have are motivational gifts. They're wired into your into the fabric of your personality and your person. And so they're inseparable from you. And so you can turn it on and off anytime you want. Likewise with reconciliation. You have the capacity, you have the ability. We're called. The Bible says go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. That word nation is the Greek word ethnos, where we get the English word ethnic. So when I reread the text, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every ethnicity. The Bible assumes that when you're converted to Christ, it's inside your DNA, on the 
know your level. You have the ability to be reconcilers. And so you have that ability. But being intentional about it is when you then put on certain kind of perspectives. A perspective that you may put on as this. When you speak to people, and if you're awkward, you're learning. It's just like a little child when they're learning how to walk. And, and you see them, they stumble in their little, you know, fat legs, chubby legs, and they're stumbling. And the parent, as my wife and I were with our daughters learning to walk, I said, come on, sweetheart, you can do it, you can do it. And they stand up and they wobble a little bit, and then they walk, and then they take a step. Okay, come on, come on, you can do it. And they take another step, and then they, I said, come on, come on, you can do it. And then they walk a couple of steps, and they wobble, and it looks so awkward. And they fall into my arms, and I would roll on the floor and laugh, and we'd laugh. I would say, you did it, you did it, you did it. Now, I'm trying to tell them to stop walking. Just be walking. <laughs> stop running. Go all the place. <laughs> so, but the idea is that when you're learning your cross-cultural skills, make yourself a student. Everyone wants to be a teacher. And if you put yourself in the position of a student, a learner, a protege, you'll always find someone interested in teaching you about the culture. All you have to do is ask. So when you say, what are some of the national foods you eat? How do you prepare that? When you say, how would you say that in your native tongue? Because you've just put them in the position of a teacher and you've put yourself in the position of a student and everybody wants to be a teacher. You are now a student. It changes the whole dynamics because now they feel you've given value to my culture by asking me a question about my culture. It requires intentionality when you're building a multi ethnic church. Don't just take it, you know, just, you all just rush through. No, 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 no. No, no, don't just rush around like that. It requires intentionality. Deliberateness. I want to create an environment where you feel welcomed, hostmanship, hospitality, the sense of what can I do to make you feel at home. Every time I go to a country, my first time in that country speaking, I always, after the first time I speak, I may be there for four or five days, I always pull my interpreter or some other leader who's bilingual, now pull to the side and say, please tell me, what can I do to make sure I'm coming across in a more effective way that connects with your culture? I make myself a student. And that first time in Kenya, they said, don't use money in your examples. Because we here in Kenya, we, the Kenyan shilling, American dollar, the gaps in one. Don't use money because it makes us feel more poor. Okay, got it. So you change your examples to connect with people. When I did my dissertation, my doctoral dissertation, the topic was on the black-white dyadic relationship in large multiracial churches. That's your level. When you look at a multiracial church, why do blacks and whites be a part of that church? How come it's multiracial? Only 3% of churches in America are multiracial. Why? So I had to go across the country. 
I looked at, and I understand the different races, but I wanted to graduate, so I didn't do it. I didn't want to do it. Filipino, Asian, and get all. No, my goal when I do school, I do it the quickest route. In and out, make quick. Okay, if you want to study everything, you'll be able to use your terms. You go ahead. I want to move on. That's how I do school. But, <laughs> but I studied eight churches going across America. Four with African-American leaders that congregations were racially diverse. At least 11% of the church that we have a different racial makeup than the majority to quantify as racially diverse church. Four with white leaders that had racially diverse congregation. I went across the country studying them on a technical you know, doctoral PhD, which is a research doctorate type of degree. So you have to read every book in the world on the topic. Every journal article in the world, technical stuff, not on the popular press book, not the technical books on the topic. So what you're going to add in your dissertation is just adding one sentence to the academic world in that particular subject. When I would go there, and I'm, this ties in being intentional, so I'm not just putting that, I have reasons. When I would go and study these churches, I would study it on several levels. I would have a focus group, two focus groups. The focus group technically is anywhere from 8 to 12 people that you meet with for 60 to 90 minutes around a question that you can't find in any book. To be able to, that's how books become written. That's how you get social data. And so I would, every church I went in, I would have two focus groups, both meeting with for 90 minutes, 8 to 12 people. They don't see each other. So if the senior pastor was African American, I would meet with whites. If the senior pastor was white, I would meet with African Americans. I wanted to find out why this church is racially diverse. What made it multiracial? What made it that way? I found out that there are four reasons why the church has become racially diverse. You may want to write this down. Because if you want to have a multi-ethnic church or a multi-ethnic fellowship, you need to understand what makes it work. Being intentional. Because it doesn't happen haphazardly. It doesn't happen because you're a nice person. It doesn't happen because you're a great speaker. I can throw a rock and hit 10,000 great speakers if I throw it across the country. There are a lot of great speakers, greater than you and me put together. But that's how I build a, uh, build a racially diverse church. There's something else. There's a theory called the social exchange theory. And I don't want to get overly technical, but I just want you to see if my degree is not store-bought. <laughs> but there's a, there's, there's a theory called the social exchange theory. The theory says this. The only reason why you're going to cross over your own cultural, ethnic, and racial group to come into mine is that you gain something from my world that you can't gain from your own. So my question to you now about being intentional, I'm going to get to the four reasons in a moment. My question to you about being intentional is this. Why should someone of a different race come to your fellowship? What will they gain from being there that they can't gain from being among people of their own kind? And if you don't know what the answer is, then the answer to you, I'll tell you the answer. They're not coming. There must be a reason. And therefore, one, the sovereignty of God. God does something, sovereignty is God does something independent of us that we have no input in, like the Zuzu Street Revival. It was racially diverse. The power of God showed up. Black people, white people came together there in 1906 on Azusa Street, and they came, why? The presence of God, sovereign move of God. Put that to the side. I can't control the sovereignty of God. There's nothing I can do. God does what he wants to do when he wants to do it without my input. He never says, hey, David, what do you think? He never did God say that. And if you say God said that to you, I know you're crazy. The three other reasons is where that intentionality comes in. 
Because every one of those churches, it became so clear, each of those focus groups, one of those reasons emerged. One, one of those reasons started putting to the side the sovereignty of God. Another reason, the worship experience. Something happened in the worship experience that was so transformational that people would drive by a hundred churches where everybody in that church looked exactly like them, and they'll come to the church where that that worship experience is taking place because they feel so connected to God because of the worship experience. It was so transformational. Third reason, the sense of belonging, community. I remember going to this church out in Arkansas, African-American, in the, about an hour away from the main city there in Arkansas. Church of about six, seven hundred people, about 70% white, African-American leader. The moment I walked in, and you just feel like, man, I'm home. I feel, it's almost in the atmosphere. It's just, it's just it reeks in the building. It, it, it feels like I belong. See, there's some places where the reason why the church is racially diverse and ethnically diverse is because this sense of community, sense of belonging. I was in a place outside of Atlanta, another small little rural area, a white pastor with this amazing racially diverse church, and, and he didn't even have a theology on reconciliation. He didn't even understand it. When I questioned him, what does reconciliation mean? I started asking technical questions, not academic questions, but more just pastoral theological questions. He had no framework by which he taught the racial reconciliation. didn't even understand it properly. But the church was racially diverse, and it was just, and I'm looking there, just my, my mouth is open. And then I ask, when, when I'm going through the focus group, I'm asking the African Americans, why are you here? And one girl, she just got space that came in, and I feel like I belong. That was the answer. The fourth reason, the preacher. Not the preaching, the preacher. Something flowed out of that man's life that was so attractional on a trans-ethnic way that people would drive by a hundred churches to get to that church, not because of music, not because of a sense of belonging or community, but because of the preacher. And the preacher, he didn't appreciate it. So it wasn't about his skill, his homiletical skill. It wasn't that. It was something that was nonverbal coming out of his heart. It was you, when you when you came around him, you just felt like, oh, that guy loves me. Man, that guy he scratches the itch of my soul that nothing else, no one else scratches. And he's not even articulating the gospel in any kind of finesse way. He's no popular preacher. He's not on the preaching circuit per se. There's just something that flows out of his life. And what I'm saying to you is this. To build and maintain a multi-ethnic church, one of those four things must be at work in your ministry. And whatever that is, 
different. Are you with me? practical things you have to do, certainly, between the monoethnic and the multi-ethnic. I'll just throw out a couple of practical things. The worship style has to be far-reaching and its appeal. The length of service also has to be important. If you have a long service, I mean, think, there's technical studies have been, been, been done about churches, the length of service for a white congregation, you know, black congregation, Latino congregation, multiracial congregation. It is amazing. For the white congregation, typical worship length of service in America is one hour. For the black congregation, they're still there. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the service is still going on. I mean, it's forever. <laughs> for the race for the birth church, is typically 90 minutes, an hour, 15 minutes, and 90 minutes. Latino church, typical to the black church. There's still service, there's still a service. I was talking to one Latino brother with a traditional Latino church. He said, Pastor, we have service every day. I said, What do you have service every day for? And I couldn't even get through to him, so I could change my way of thinking to help him change his behavior. I said, Brother, if you have people in your church every day, they can't even sin. Give a chance to sin. So they can know the grace of God. He said, that makes sense. How <laughs> being silly. But the idea is that, and it's true, it works. He's canceled the services. <laughs> Come on, man. Give him a sin. Let him know the beauty of grace. I mean, it's in the beauty of forgiveness. But, <laughs> but you have to be intentional. Two building blocks already. You have to then simply be accepting be intentional. And finally, I touched on this a little bit last time. I'll wrap it up with this. And you have to be an advocate. Be an advocate is a person who defends, who pleads in favor of, who supports or urges by argument and recommends publicly someone who they're advocating for. So to be a good advocate, you must get to know me and know someone like me and know my story. See, you have to know about my people. You have to know about our story and our culture. I remember in our congregation many, many years ago when this Italian lady came to me and said, Pastor, I want you to listen to this. And it was a video about the Italians and the migration to America. And so I found it to be so encouraging and so edifying and so eye-opening. And so what she was essence saying is that I want you to be an advocate for my people, but you have to understand my people understand our story. You have to understand that. And to be an advocate, you have to defend. I was teaching at a marriage seminar, which was primarily an African-American group, and afterwards they had little hospitality time for me and the other guests who were in the back room, and I just happened to say that I passed to this church that's multi-ethnic, multi-racial. When I said that, you know, the guests, it's, it's like, they stunned me. It's almost like I had the plague. And before they gave me that cold shoulder, they told me that they were at one of the Ivy's, Ivy League schools of the students and they were just, you know, just ostracized because of their race. I thought I found a different experience because I passed for people that are white and 
And I said that what I found, though, is that the white guy who comes to my church has to pay a greater sacrifice than the black guy. So the white guy has to answer people's questions. I'm asking white about that church he has to pass the black. The black guy never has to deal with that question, but the white guy has to. So therefore, I have a greater level of appreciation for the sacrifice that the white guy, the Latino guy, the Asian guy has to make to be a part of my world. When I did that, that's when the stunning took place. See, what I was doing is practicing advocacy. See, advocacy is when you're able to defend and speak someone else's, speak their, represent them because they're not able to represent themselves. And you have to learn someone's story to do that. And you have to open your heart wide to them, to their value, to, to who they are. That's what Paul did towards the Antioch church when he spoke to Peter publicly. He was practicing advocacy. And when you do that, sometimes you lose people. You lose people. You lose friends that are your own race. I've lost a lot of people that are friends that were black. Because they didn't like my sense. But I felt that my sense is a kingdom sense. I said, I got white guys on my pastoral team. I got, you know, I got uh, Asian guys on my ministerial team. I have, I have Latino guys on my team. I said, what am I going to do then? Should I ignore them? Should I act like they're not there? They're not black. Nor am I asking them to be black, nor are they asking me to be white or be anything else other than what I am. And so we're learning to get along and connect and function in this way, which it does require some hard work on all of our parts and real a learning curve constantly because the, 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 the target keeps moving. I mean, how many white guys have said to me, how many times do I have to stand up and, and, and say, I'm sorry for, the, for, the, for the, all the bad things that white people have done after a while? You know, I'm tired. I mean, it's, and which, which you can understand. So you can't really teach diversity from the standpoint of the white guys just need to apologize, and we're done with it. We're not done with it, because that doesn't work any longer. And so what does work is the idea of coaching people, black and white, and every other race, how to be diverse. When I'm in South Korea, one of the biggest problems that South Korea is having right now is that 10% of the Korean population is no longer Korean because of commerce, because of education, because of business. And so they're asking me questions like, how do we deal with diversity? We've never had a problem with that before. So my friends who go to China, they said that some of the Chinese leaders, they come to them and say, hey, and my friends with the Christian Missionary Alliance, uh, you know, that, that's part of Nyack College and Alliance Theological Seminary. And so they said to me, David, when these Chinese leaders, they said to us, look, Nyack is known for its diversity, and, and you guys have a handle on multiculturalism. Now, we know how to be martyrs. We know how to die. We have no problem dying for Jesus. But we don't know how to reach people that are different than us. Can you teach us how to reach people that are different? Can you imagine that kind of question? Now, if they said to me, look, you have a problem with dying for Jesus? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I, I, I'm scared, yeah. They said, we we've, we've conquered that, but we don't know how to get along with people that are different than ourselves. Teach us how to do that. We teach how to die for Jesus. That's how be. be an advocate. That's like close. This soldier was killed on the battlefield. 
Americans were also told to love them so much that they decided they remembered seeing this Catholic cemetery several miles away, so they carried their friend's body to the cemetery. And when they got there, the priest that was overseeing the cemetery, they asked the priest, can we bury our friend in the graveyard here? The priest said, was he Catholic or Protestant? They said he's Protestant. The priest said, I'm sorry, only Catholics can be buried in this cemetery. But I'd like for you to bury your friend right outside of the fence. So they buried their friend there. A bit saddened because they wanted to bury him within the cemetery proper. The next day they came to put some flowers on the gravesite. They looked. They couldn't find it. So they went to the priest and said, Sir, where's our friend's body that we buried right outside of the fence here? The priest said, All night I was troubled. And what I did was I got up in the middle of the night and I moved the fence to include your friend in the graveyard. That's what you have to do. You have to move the fence in your life to include people that normally you would have left out. This general discussion is doctoral dissertation on the Navajo Indian. And so he actually went to the Navajo reservation and lived there for several months. And he lived with a family. And along the family was an elderly grandma that didn't speak any English, only spoke the Navajo dialect. But somehow there was a rapport that was established between this young man and this elderly Navajo grandma. The day came when he was supposed to go back to university and wrap up his dissertation and graduate. So they threw him a party. People from the village came and they laughed, they talked, they shared stories. And when he was leaving, about to go into his, into his car and drive off, the elderly grandma ran outside of the house and ran to the car. And the young man got out of the car and stood there next to her, looking at her, and she looking at him. She took her two hands and she placed it on both cheeks of that young man as she reached up. And in her few words of English that she learned, she looked at him with tears streaming down her face and said, I like me best when I'm with you. Until you're able to say that, you're not going to grow a multi-ethnic ministry. Until you're able to say to people that are different than you, I like me best when I'm with you. Let me stand, let's stand together, let's just pray, and I'm going to hand it over to the brothers for a moment. Let's take a moment, just lift your hands to the Lord, and just begin to just celebrate God. Thank Him for who He is, and what He's called you to do, and what He's called you to be. And if you've been so moved tonight, where you feel as if God did something in your heart towards multi-ethnic ministry, I want you to come and stand here at the altar with me. I want there to be this sense of a deposit that will fall on you tonight. If you in your heart, if the Holy Spirit did something in your heart to 
to give you this sense of awareness and openness and acceptance as if it's almost like you felt this nudge from the Holy Spirit. Go for it. Go for it. Go for it. Make changes. Make changes. If that's what's happened in your heart, then come and stand with me here at the altar. The Spirit of the Lord wants to, wants to be an impartation. For some of you, you already had that go on with you. That's fine. But if that's what's happened in your heart this evening as I spoke, please come and be a part of this altar time. The altar is a place of change. The altar is a place of transformation. The altar is a place where we lay things down and pick things up. And tonight the Lord wants you to lay down your pain, your hurt, your limited knowledge, your grief, even maybe former attempts that were not so successful to cross the ethnic divide. Lay all that stuff down. It's a new day. The Holy Spirit wants to birth something new inside of you. And I want you to, there's some things that can be imparted, and I want there to be an impartation from me to you. What God laid on my heart in that grocery store 33 years ago. I want the Lord to lay it on you. Why can't it be like this in my house? So, Father, I thank you for these tremendous men and women. I ask that you just cause there to be an impartation on each one. Let the power of the Holy Spirit touch each one in a unique way. That when they go back to their respective communities, their hearts will be burdened for people that are different than themselves. That they'll be able to articulate, sometimes through their tears, with their respective congregations and groups that they fellowship with, this whole desire to impact a city that's diverse and transcultural, transethnic. I pray, dear God, that you anoint each one, give them creative ideas, unique ideas. I pray to send people their way that are different than them, that'll befriend them, and that they'll establish these social networks and these abilities and relationships that are so life-giving and mutually rewarding. I ask for your power to fall upon each one in a unique way, dear God. Use them. Use them to model diversity in their community and wherever you send them, across the pond and around the world. I pray blessings be upon them. In Christ's name. Amen. Wait there for a moment. Let the Lord speak to you. Father, I ask for all those who've already had this big burden for a multi-ethnic, transracial, transcultural ministry. Take them to a new level. Radicalize them. That they may be able to influence the whole swath of people. That they may be influencers 
where God takes them to a place where they can be able to transform them, thinking of people so they'll be more accepting of others. I thank you in Christ's name. Round of applause, Brother Dennis. Come. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you for coming to the altar. Would you mind going back to your seat for just a moment? We'll dismiss shortly. There is a time of fellowship in the gymnasium again this evening. I didn't even make it back there, so I don't know what you had to eat last night. Certainly the fellowship was good. What what do you say? Wow. Dr. David, one of the thoughts, um, interestingly enough, as this last year has gone by, We've been meeting with our African-American brothers and sisters here in the city and a couple of of the the Latino brothers and sisters. And independent of each one, as we've talked about this conference and talked about the two of you and what we were trying to do, we we got positive responses. And, And many of those folks are with us tonight. But independent of each one, they all ask the same question. And that was, okay, so we, we, we come in with them. And we have a great meeting. Everybody's happy. And we say, this is great. What's going to happen afterwards? Well, you said intentionally. We all know anything we commit ourselves to that requires intentionality is going to require energy, time, sacrifice, cost. It just doesn't happen. Even the social reason, you got to make time. And we're all busy with our own ministries and our own activity, but I think we're sensing this is a God moment. This convention has been a historic God moment that if we live a few more years, we'll look back and say, we didn't realize what God was preparing us for down the road. So intentionality, being intentional, requires commitment. And it's not just going to be Herb Flint and I do. It's going to be all of us because you all are going back to communities where there is diversity already. There's something going on in the community that's different. People, and it may be just economical, but there's difference. So God is speaking to us, isn't he? And uh, he's giving us a word. It's been clear today, I think. And uh, and Dwayne, I liked it, and I kind of hated it today. When what came out was, do we really want this? And, and there, 
was a moment, you know, we, we didn't answer it. There was a moment where still comes in. We got pushed over tonight. We're, we're, we're there. We, we've taken the step. Now we can't just stand like this. We got to move forward together. All right. I had to go back to your seat so you could get in your pocketbooks and your purses. Get out your checkbooks. If you need an envelope, do we have some envelopes? No, you didn't. What am I going to do with you? So, so if you need, uh, you got cash, and, and you need a receipt, bring the cash to her, and he'll get a receipt to you. All right. He'll take receipt. We have three baskets up here. Come and, and put your offering uh, in the basket. The registration, obviously, that we charge doesn't cover the entire cost of the convention. You've got to know that, I mean, here is Minister Stan Jordan. He's devoted two entire evenings. And tonight, listen, tonight was supposed to be their rehearsal for worship, right? I mean, you did a little bit of it tonight. But you took, you know, they've taken time. And, uh, and, and we can't go away saying, well, they just did it for nothing. So your offering will help us to cover an honorarium for uh, New Covenant and for the work that they've done for us in the worship this week. Uh, your offering will help us to cover the honorariums for our speakers and the motel rooms and all the other accommodation things that we've had to, had to do. And uh, so think about it. You've already prayed about it, I'm sure. Do what God tells you to do, obviously. All right, Father God, thank you for the word of God that we've heard tonight. It finds a logic place in our heart, and uh, change is coming. It, it's already here. We've already been changed by the word of God. Uh, make us now sensitive to the Holy Spirit as we intentionally move forward, uh, both as a fellowship and individually, as we go back to our communities and and, and begin to put into practice the things that we've heard that we will now begin to experience. And, uh, and thank you for the Holy Spirit being with us. And that we will develop relationships that will be open and transparent and learning. And we appreciate the word tonight that we need to approach uh, in, the, in the vein of being a student, a learner, uh, that we can grow from that experience. Now, bless this offering. Thank you for each one that will give to meet the need that there is that, that uh, we acknowledge and accept the responsibility for. In Jesus' name, bless the food that we're about to be eating and the fellowship around the tables. Bless our, our sleeping tonight. Give us rest. And tomorrow, Lord, uh, as we come together in these last few sessions together, uh, enrich us and cause us to grow even more than we've done today. We pray in Jesus' name and all the people said together, amen. All right, get up, bring your offering, and then go. Yeah, Nick, you want to say something? Yes, please. Before you give, before you give, I ask permission. I did. Um, you know this is Pastor Appreciation Month, right? You know the Sunday is Pastor Appreciation Month.
redundant. Some of you know that if you're not aware of it, it is. And uh, while we were in worship this morning, I felt a strong urge from the Holy Spirit that we need to bless our bishop. Most of you, most of you probably know this, but uh, Bishop does not collect a salary from our fellowship. He's supported, like many families, people support him uh, who believe in what he does. I've been a part of CMI for 35 years, and I cannot tell you how many times when I've been in great distress, I call my friend, my bishop, and uh, he coaches me through. He uh, talks me off the ledge. Uh, I've never ever felt like giving up. I, I, I just I'm too uh, stubborn for that. But he helps set the ship right. Uh, he speaks into my life. Uh, he's been a friend. He's been a prayer comforter for me. Uh, when uh, my wife and I went through a serious health crisis a little over a year ago, I know he prayed for me every day. And uh, I know that his prayers lifted me up. And I just have a feeling that he's done the same for many of you. And so uh, there are three baskets up on the stage, but this uh, center basket over here, uh, we're going to dedicate this center basket over here uh, to uh, give an expression of love and appreciation to our bishop. As the Holy Spirit lays on your heart, I want to encourage you to give. You know the scripture says, let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And uh, he doesn't get any wages directly from us. So this is just a way that we can express our love and appreciation. And then we can continue to express that by supporting the ministry of CMI. Because if we can grow the ministry of CMI and the income of CMI, then our bishop can be paid a wage that he is worthy of. And if you agree with me, would you say amen? Well, Father, I just want to thank you so much for our bishop. I thank you for Dennis and Carol for their love for us, God. How they have helped many of us, how they have encouraged us and coached us, and, and Lord, how they are leading us now with great vision, Lord. And we pray, God, that you bless them, Lord, that you prosper them, that you cover them and protect them and use them, Lord God. And that, Father God, this would be the last year that they would go without receiving a wage from the fellowship because you will have expanded and grown and prospered us, Lord, and, and you're going to change the complexion of us, Lord. We're going to look different next year and in the years ahead, God, because of what you're doing in us, Lord, and what you're going to do through us, God. And uh, I just thank you, God, for the beauty of what you've done for us this, uh, these few days together, Lord. Thank you, God. Uh, bless this offering, Lord. Uh, may it be plenteous and prosperous, Lord. All for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.